Welcome to the Next Leadership Academy podcast hosted by Chad Jones and Cody Phillips. For those of you who are first-time listeners, the Next Academy was specifically designed for construction professionals and the unique challenges they face. Wherever you are on your construction leadership journey, we have a pathway built for you. Over 50 classes with an empirically-based curriculum leveraging modern technology to deliver the most user-friendly experience for each and every participant. The overarching goal of Next is to help, to help contractors become more sustainable and profitable long into the future. The feedback from our participants has been overwhelmingly positive, and I encourage you to consider walking alongside your peers on this leadership journey. Please visit our website at www.nextleadershipacademy.org to learn more. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Put that coffee down. Oh, have I got your attention now? Have I got your attention now? officially go ahead and fire up episode two of 2024. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the next Leadership Academy podcast. I'm Cody Phillips, joined as always by my man, Chad Jones. We've got an awesome episode for you today to continue our 2024 learning series. I want to say thank you so much to all of our listeners over the past six years, humbled and beyond grateful that you choose to spend your valuable time with us on this podcast. So thank you for that. As I tell you, each and every time we meet, grab those notepads, a fresh pencil, and get ready to take this in. As you all have grown accustomed to over the years, Chad and I will be discussing a leadership book that we feel can make a significant impact on your life. Today, we're diving into Never Enough by Jennifer B. Wallace. In today's episode, we're afforded the incredible opportunity to have Jennifer join us to help weave some of these concepts into the fabric of the construction industry. Our guest today is an award-winning journalist and author. She is a contributor to the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and appears on national television to discuss her articles and relevant topics in the news. After graduating from Harvard, she began her journalism career at CBS 60 Minutes, where she was part of a team that won the Robert F. Kennedy Award for Excellence in Journalism. She is a journalism fellow at the Center for Parent and Teen Communication at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Her book we will be diving into today, Never Enough, was released in August of 2023 and investigates the deep roots of toxic achievement culture and finds out what we must do to fight back drawing on interviews with families, educators, and an original survey of nearly 6,500 parents. She exposes how the pressure to perform is not a matter of parental choice, but baked into our larger society and spurred by increasing income inequality and dwindling opportunities. As a result, children are increasingly absorbing the message that they have no value outside of their accomplishments, a message that is reinforced by the media and greater culture at large. I'm really excited to talk to you today and share this book with our audience. First, from both Chad and I, thank you so much for being with us today. How you doing, Jennifer? I am great. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you again. I know you have a very busy schedule, and 
I found this book to be a wake-up call. Um, I have three young boys myself, 13, almost 11, and almost nine, all who are in athletics, travel ball, and this notion of toxic achievement culture really hit home for me. And I'm sure that many of our listeners out there will feel the same. And I'm hopeful that I come away from this conversation as a more prepared parent, uh, a better leader. And without a doubt, there is certainly increased pressure in today's society on our children and on ourselves uh, for that matter, for a myriad of reasons, many of which you outline in this great book, you offer a tangible toolbox, I guess you could say, and a framework to help. And I'm excited for you to share your insights with our audience here today. And I think this is a great place to start. So my first question for you is about this toxic achievement culture that we live in. Um, can you tell our audience a bit about this concept and the damage that is ultimately done to young people by perpetuating it as parents? Yes. So thank you again so much for having me. So um, what, I, what I outline in this book, I make the premise that I'm not against achievement. Achievement brings, can bring joy if done in healthy ways. It's what gets us up in the morning, you know, pursuing a really cool goal and then the pride we feel when we get it. Where achievement becomes toxic, though, is when our children who are developing their sense of selves, that's the major development task of adolescence is to create this secure sense of self. But when you are creating it in an environment where there is an excessive pressure to achieve, what happens is your sense of self becomes so tangled up in your achievements that you only feel good about who you are when you're achieving. And when you don't achieve, you feel terrible. You feel valueless and worthless. And I heard this in students that I interviewed all over the country. This is not just a problem in a few select communities. This is a problem being seen everywhere. Actually, not just in the US. I've been uh, speaking with schools in England and schools in Europe and even South America and Hong Kong and China. So this is really a global phenomenon. This hyper competitive pressure to achieve is not just an American phenomenon, um, but I think we've perhaps perfected it. I'm not sure. <laughs> but where it becomes toxic again is when our children's sense of self is contingent on their performance as opposed to being valuable just for who they are deep inside. Yeah, love that. And honestly, I feel, I feel that as a uh, 43-year-old. I've found myself, and I'm wondering if you've heard this from other people. I found myself when I was reading your book, it's an outstanding book, and I agree with you that anybody that's a parent that has young people coming into um, themselves and into the school need to really, that you need to read it. But I found myself getting incredibly angry as I read your book because... You, as you read the book, you can see it all of a sudden in your own communities and you, you, you can see what's happening. And then when you sit where we sit in the industry that we sit in, where apprenticeship and attracting um, young, talented people to the trades is so important, you even get angrier because lots of this high achievement culture is focused on 
status type schools and status type jobs. I mean, that became very evident to me in, in reading the book. And I'm going to kind of frame this for our listeners. When I first came across this book while reading an article in Harvard Business Review, the article was titled The Perils of an Achievement Culture and How to Escape the Grip of Perfectionism. While this podcast and the next Leadership Academy focuses on leadership lessons for the construction industry, the book we're looking at this month cuts to a core issue that our industry has faced for years and has struggled to address at times. The construction industry in the United States of America was valued at $2.1 trillion in 2022, trillion with a T. It's expected that the electrical construction industry alone will climb to $283 billion by 2028. Yet we still face an uphill battle in the race that you're talking about in this book to show parents and people that not just a good career, but a great career, a family-changing, life-path-changing career is also right in front of their faces. But I think sometimes, oh, it just doesn't feel as cool when you're going to play tennis with your friends to say, my son or my daughter is going to be an apprentice. Meanwhile, that same son or that same daughter could go on to become a project manager at one of the largest construction firms in the country. They could own their own firm. They could be their own boss. The levels of success that they could achieve in multiple positions is unfathomable. Yet, it doesn't get viewed that way. Um, I couldn't agree more. Uh, let me step back and give you what I think parents are even subconsciously struggling with um, on this issue. So when I was growing up in the 70s and early 80s, I'm 51 now, life was generally more affordable. Housing was more affordable. Healthcare was more affordable. Higher education was more affordable. There was slack in the system. So a parent could be relatively assured that even with some setbacks, even if their child didn't go to college or didn't go to a top college, that most likely they'd be able to replicate their own childhoods in adulthood, if not do even better than their own parents did. But modern parents today, we are facing a different reality. We are seeing the crush of the middle class. We are seeing the first generation, the millennials, who are not doing as well on average as their parents. And it's always been the job of a parent to raise a child to thrive when we are no longer around to guide them. But never has that future felt so uncertain and so competitive, right? We don't know something like what 40% of the jobs are gonna be when our kids are out in the job market. So here's what I found in the conversations that I had all over the country was that modern parents are betting big, that early childhood success, getting their kids into a quote unquote good college, they hope will act as a kind of life vest in a sea of economic uncertainty. So we can't control for the jobs. We can't control for the steep inequity that's been ushered in over the last few decades. We can't control for hyper-competition that globalization has brought us. And so what parents are hoping, even subconsciously, is that, that that college will act as a life vest. But what we are seeing in too many kids is that that life vest is acting like a leaded vest. And it is drowning too many of the kids we are trying to protect. And that there is a better way. And when you talk about jobs in construction and jobs uh, in electrical work, 
what you are talking about are jobs that can really feed a sense of mattering in a young person, feeling valued to the team that they are building with and seeing how they can add value in a world that is grappling with, you know, figuring out a green future, right? Millennials and and Gen Z and all these young people, they they are actually now rejecting uh, a lot of the paths that their parents had forged. They don't want jobs where they're going to feel like cogs in a machine, where they can feel like they could be let go at any moment. Um, I think we are coming out of COVID in this great awakening where offices and industries and jobs need to offer more than just a paycheck. And the second thing that I think work in construction and electrical fields and plumbing, what the other thing they offer is young people don't have to be saddled with debt. We don't have to go to college for many of these jobs. And actually, actually, when you look at what the 21st century careers and jobs are going to require, no matter your field, is constant learning. So you can get that college degree and be saddled with $100,000 and leave college without the skills that you are going to need because we are in a rapidly changing world. And our young people are going to have to know how to constantly learn and relearn on the job. No doubt. Spot on. That emergence of status anxiety is so real. For many of us, this this status anxiety is so ingrained in our modern society that it can feel almost innate and unavoidable. We talk in the next academy about challenging the status quo and its importance to leadership. But I also feel it's of great importance in looking closer at status anxiety. I'd say to our listeners, don't be afraid to question traditions and second guess whether someone's behavior is backed by reason and logic. You know, ask yourself if the judgment of others that you're so afraid of is really even worth worrying about. You know, I think if we can learn to not judge ourselves or others by material standards, that we can begin to remove this anxiety from our lives for good. And I know that's probably much easier said than done, but I'd like to think that that's at least a step towards that goal. Here's what I want to tell you. Uh, A few things as you were talking, I was writing down to remember to say. Number one, we are wired by evolution to care about status. So for our earliest ancestors, people who had status had the best cut of meat, they were able to um, get the best mates. And so this anxiety about status was ingrained with us because these were the people who evolved. Here is the problem in our modern society. It is a false alarm. While we are wired to care about status, it does not fit our modern society. And it can cause false alarms. And even worse, it can put us on paths that are not actually conducive to physical health and mental health. And just, I'd love to just tell you a quick thing about what I learned in researching this that has transformed my life and why I want to write a new book, which I'm in the process of writing, on adulthood and how our well-being is impacted 
by things like status. So researchers who study values, what we value in our lives, they have conducted studies internationally, and they have found that we all have roughly a dozen core values inside of us, no matter where we live, if we're in Europe or Asia or the US. And researchers put it into two groups, extrinsic values and intrinsic values. So extrinsic values are things like, you know, wanting the statusy job, wanting a big house, wanting popularity, wanting to look a certain way, wanting to drive the big car. Those are extrinsic values. Intrinsic values are things like wanting personal growth, wanting to be a member of the community, wanting to be good to the environment and helpful, wanting to be a great parent, a great friend, a great spouse. Those are intrinsic values. And here's why it's important to understand the difference between the two of them. We all have the same values, but depending on the pond we are swimming in, certain values are activated more than others. And in our current consumer culture, we are bombarded with messages that activate extrinsic values, messages that people are profiting off of. Oh, pursue this job and you'll be popular. Drive this car and she'll want you. All of these messages, someone is profiting off of these messages and they are activating these extrinsic values day in and day out. And here's why that's important. Because extrinsic values, wanting to go for the status job, has been linked with negative mental health and substance abuse disorder. Whereas intrinsic values, things like wanting to do a good job, wanting to work in a field that's actually helping the environment and helping the future generations, that is linked with well-being for us and the well-being we want for our kids. So we need to educate young people, and we need to educate adults on what leads to the well-being we so, so desperately seek and what is leading them down the path to mental health struggles, loneliness, and substance abuse disorder, which is rampant in our society. So, Jennifer, that's the one thing that, that kept reverberating in my mind as I read this book. A lot of the examples in your book come from parents who had nothing but love. They were trying to do the right thing. When you take a step back and you say, what's the end result that we're really trying to achieve here? And you take another step back from that and you realize what you just said right there, that there's cottage industries set up around test prep, getting into an Ivy League school or a big college the $20 billion youth travel sports industry. These are big businesses. And you, you probably feel like you're not doing your job as a parent if you're not keeping up in the rat race and what I like to call a, comp a complete um, dupe of the system, really. And, and the reason why I'm going to say that's this. In the beginning, you mentioned achievement and pursuit of goals. We couldn't agree more that those are things that we value, we want our children to value, Cody and I value them. Absolutely. The biggest difference, the way I see it is, those have to be the child or the young person's achievement or their goal that they're pursuing. It, it can't be mine. So a prime example of that, like, you know, in my personal world, a very simple philosophy I have is I'm, I'm not going, you have to want to do this. And then you have to go do it. And by showing me you want to do it, I, I'm absolutely going to support you, but I am not going to push you into 
a certain team, a certain sport, a certain way, because I know at the end of the day, when this is all said and done, you either have the passion to pursue it on your own or you do fail, period. That's what happens when this game ends of measuring sticks. Correct. And you're in the real world. You have to love it and pursue it, right? <laughs> and so as you, as you step back and you see all this stuff, you start to realize like, man, it is all out of love. It is all out of caring. It is out of pressure that, wow, these people probably don't feel like they're able to keep up with these other parents. They probably feel like they're falling behind. They're not doing the right thing. And, and then meanwhile, obviously, the young person's dealing with the stresses of, well, I love basketball or I love lacrosse, but, you know, boy, I would really like to do something else now. But there's no way. Look at what, look at what they've done. Look at what they've bought. Look at where they've taken me. How do I walk away now? And Jennifer, to piggyback on that, you, you all have to let me know. Chad, I think those are fantastic points and so true. I mean, they got a lot of parents in a system right now. They saw the sucker and they've taken advantage and there's no doubt. And I'm interested to know from you whether you think I'm on the right track here because I've tried hard to tell my boys that the value in our house is placed in the work, the process of working towards the destination, not solely the destination, trying to put the target on things that they can control, attitude, effort, sportsmanship, how they treat others, things like that. You know, you take baseball, for instance. All three of my boys are in travel ball, very competitive, it's a very hard game filled with failure after failure. If you get out seven out of 10 times in the major leagues, you might wind up in the Hall of Fame. I mean, it's a hard game, specifically mentally. And instead of focusing on the outcome, did you get a hit? Like most parents, I believe, do. Um, for me, it's always about, did you have a good mental approach stepping into the batter's box? Did you swing at a good pitch? Did you find a barrel? You know, trying to remove the outcome of did you get a hit and move more towards processes that they can control. And I do feel like that's helped, but it's very hard to not focus on the outcomes. It's a constant internal fight that I have raising these three boys, trying to regulate my own internal emotion and desire for their success, trying to detach, to take a meta moment as Mark Breckett would say, and try to see the bigger picture and to let them know that ultimately their self-worth isn't based on achievement. So my question building on all of these, these recent topics that we just discussed is, do you have any specific advice to parents of young athletes like Chad and I that may be able to help to take the kettle off the heat, as you say? Yeah. So I think the internal struggle that you are talking about is a universal struggle today in modern parenting. And what I have found, you know, when, when I was growing up again in the seventies and eighties, I don't think my parents were staying awake at night, worrying about how I was doing in math and if I was going to make the team. So what I, one sociologist I interviewed talked about how, you know, when his kids were growing up, he's like in his seventies, when his kids were growing up and standing at the, at the sidelines, they were good athletes. People would go up to him and say, you must be so proud of your kids. And he would enjoy that. Now he's on the sidelines as a grandfather and parents come up to his son, the father of the kids on the field. And they say, so how'd you do it? How'd you make him into this great athlete? We have been, we as parents feel this pressure because of this myth in our society that children come in as a blank slate and then it is on the parent to make them a success. 
When I surveyed 6,500 parents around the country about the pressures they felt in parenting, 75% of them said that they felt responsible for making their kids a success. And 83% of them said that they felt like other parents were judging their parenting based on their kids' success. So not only are we pressured to feel like we have to make our kids a success, we are pressured in our society to show our moral worth on the sidelines that we are a parent that is deeply invested in our kids. And we, <laughs> right, there has been this, I mean, this is a much longer story, but over the last few decades, there's been a real hollowing out of adult identity. And what's filled it up is parenting. Parenting has become a lifestyle choice and an identity. And what that does is it disrupts our relationship with our kids. So what you're doing with your kids, focusing on the process and not the shiny outcome, is actually, of course, what we should be doing with our kids. But it is so hard. So so I I want to offer the parents a piece of advice. So Mark Bracken and I walk sometimes in Central Park. He's become a dear friend. Wow. And he said to me, I've done some consulting work at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, and that's how I met him. But he said to me on one of these walks, he said, in those stressful moments, when you are feeling that internal tension, Cody, that you talked about, think about this. Think about your kids 10 or 20 years from now. What is the story we want them to tell about their childhoods and about their relationship us. Yeah, it's awesome. Then ask yourself if you're helping them tell that story. Yeah, I love that. You know, I and it it's so true. I see it every day, every weekend at these ball fields and these courts and these ice rinks and these football fields. You see the parents, their identity is wrapped in the performance of their child. And it's crazy. And I always try to tell the boys, look, I played. My career's over. <laughs> this is on you. This is it, this is all on you. It has absolutely zero bearing on who I am as a person. But I, I think you're exactly right. And I love the notion of stepping back, detaching, and being like, if I was that kid, how would I want my parent to react in that moment? Or as you said, in the future, what are they going to say about you? How are they going to think back about how you handled those moments? This book decidedly does not blame parents. I say in this book time and time again, um, this is not a parent problem. This is a societal problem. So when we zoom out, why is it that parents feel so pressured? It is because we are sensing fewer and fewer guarantees and safety nets for our kids. And so we parents are being forced to weave individualized safety nets for each one of our children. That is what intensive parenting is. It is not a psychological problem that the media and parenting experts like to say that parents are just, it's a psychological problem. That is not it. We are not just trying to live our lives through our kids. It is a sociological problem that we are contending with and society has put on parents' shoulders to raise this next generation with fewer safety nets, no pensions, 
no guaranteed health insurance, skyrocketing real estate prices, taxes up the wazoo. This is a very difficult life our kids are facing, and it is not because of parents' choices, but we are tasked with fixing it. So I just want to put that out there because I think we are all so quick to point the finger at parents. And when I go into schools to talk about this, the first thing I say is this is not an individual parent issue. This is bigger than any one family, any one school, and any one community. How does all of this tie into the, the, the obviously the industry that we're in and the challenges that we face? And I think it could be said of any industry, but when we talk about the achievement culture and perfectionism in academia and schools and, and AP grades and all of these things, and then youth sports. It's, it's a false belief that this line goes straight up without any cracks or bends or dips. That's not how success works. That's not how businesses work. That's not how life works, that it's not a straight line to the top without blemishes. It's, it's just not. And so the question is, when those blemishes come that are deep, how do these individuals react? How do they respond? And how do they ultimately bounce back and continue on their path? I believe that if it's their path and their passion, they do that fairly easily. If it's somebody else's path and passion, they don't come back. They stay down. And on the topic of mattering, which for our listeners out there is going to be a topic that Jennifer's working very hard on now, and I can't wait for that book to come out. But on the topic of mattering, something that stood out to me earlier that I was thinking about was Anybody listening to this podcast, whether they're a general contractor or a subcontractor, they're an electrician, plumber, carpenter, fitter, whatever, you know what I'm talking about when I say, when you ride in a car with a tradesperson, I remember riding with my grandfather, and they drive past a building, Johnson & Johnson in New Jersey or Rutgers University, slow down to a 15-mile-an-hour crawl, staring at the building. What are we doing? To pop, speed up. I built that building. It matters to them years beyond. No one ever drives by a building and slows down and says, I gave a PowerPoint presentation in that building. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's a different feeling of value. And, and there's, a, there's a whole world of people out there that I don't think quite realize what that, what that feels like. Um, he didn't do that because his parents wanted him to go do that. He did that because he loved that. And 20, 30 years after doing it, they clearly still love it because it's, it's not just him. That is something that happens with all tradespeople and ride around with them and that's what they do. So I went in search for this book of the kids who were doing well despite the pressure. I wanted to know what did they have in common? What was home life like for them? What was school like? What was their role in their community? And I found a bunch of threads that I get into in the book, but it boils down to what Chad was talking about. It was this idea of mattering. The kids who were doing well despite the pressure felt like they mattered to their families, to their schools, to their communities, and they were relied on to add value back to their families, to their schools, and to their communities. Mattering matters throughout the lifespan. So for our kids, the kids who were doing well, mattering acted like a protective shield. It didn't mean they didn't have setbacks or failures, but mattering was a buoy that lifted them up. It gave them resilience. And what we see in adulthood is that mattering is that protective factor 
that can be the difference and could be sort of the preventive measure, but also the intervention for people who are anxious, depressed, and lonely. It boils down to mattering. I'll just leave it at this. After the drive for food and shelter, it is the instinct to matter that drives human behavior for better and for worse. When we feel like we matter, we show up to the world in positive ways. We want to contribute. We want to be pro-social. We want to achieve for the greater good. When we are made to feel like we don't matter, when we're chronically made to feel like our mattering is contingent on our status, our material goods, etc., we can turn against ourselves when we are not achieving. We can feel anxious and depressed, or we can act out in anger. You know, office place shooters among the most tragic examples. Oh, I don't matter. I'll show you I matter. So mattering matters throughout the lifespan. And what people get in the trades is an inherent feeling of mattering that is not always present in office type jobs. It makes great sense. And it just so happens that today is my grandmother, uh, Garnet Rose Phillips's birthday. And uh, she's long past, but of all the people that made me feel like I matter, it was her. So it's a fitting conversation to be having today and really hits home. And I think back to her, to why I felt that way about her. And she really gave me unconditional love, a love that absolutely was not based on merit or achievement, um, simply a love based on mattering. And I love the example that you give, and I hope that you can share it here with our audience, that really uh, depicts this point of mattering about the $20 bill. It's a great one. I think it's something we could even just do for ourselves. So this was something that I, that advice I got from a, a very wise mother I interviewed with two kids who were very hard on themselves. So when they wouldn't do well on a test or if they'd get cut from a team, she would reach into her wallet and she'd grab whatever bill she had in there. Let's call it a $20 bill. She'd hold it up to her kids and she'd say, do you want this money? And the child would say, yeah. And she'd say, okay, hang on a minute. She'd crumple it up, put it on the floor, dunk it very dramatically in a glass of water. And she'd hold up to her child, the soggy, dirty, wrinkled $20 bill. And she would say, do you still want this money? Like this $20 bill, your worth doesn't change, whether you've been cut from a team, whether you've crashed and failed and feel crumpled up and soggy inside, your worth is your worth no matter what. Love it. Love that. I'm definitely going to use that uh, for my children, no doubt. So switching gears a little bit, and I try to model this for my kids, my family, my friends, uh, to not shy away from my failures and vulnerabilities to take full responsibility of my past, to show examples of my own failures and to offer them guidance and hopefully a way through theirs um, to model the way as Kuzis and Posner define it. I'm anxious to hear your thoughts on the critical importance of building a capacity for handling setbacks and failures, because I think it is so important. So we are all being raised and living in a world that overly emphasizes individualism and self-reliance, right? When we're, we're told the ultimate job of a parent is to raise self-reliant, independent adults, that's certainly a worthy goal. 
but the parents of the healthy strivers and the healthiest parents that I interviewed had a more profound goal. They wanted to teach their kids and practice themselves the skills of interdependence. That is feeling like you can rely on others and others can rely on you through setbacks, through failures, through grief, whatever it is, whatever challenges come your way. Decades worth of resilience research finds that what gives us resilience is not, you know, working out or a meditation app or lighting a relaxing candle or whatever it may be. Resilience rests fundamentally on the depth and support of our relationships. And for our kids, their resilience rests on our resilience. And for us, our resilience, our capacity for failure, our capacity to get back up again rests on the depth and support of the relationships in our lives. So we're often told as parents, oh, just put on, you know, you need to put your oxygen mask on first. I am saying something more profound than that. I am saying have one or two people in your life that you can open up to, that you could talk about your struggles, that you could talk about your failures with, who know you so intimately that they can see when you are struggling, when you are gasping for air, and friends who will reach over and put that oxygen mask on for you. That is a very different level of support than we normalize in our society. I mean, it's not that the parents I met in these communities didn't have good friends. It's that so often they didn't have the time or emotional bandwidth to depend on friends so that they could be sources of support when they need when when needed. So, if there's one takeaway from this conversation, it is a mantra that I have adopted in my own home for me, for my husband, for my kids, and it's something I learned from a psychiatrist, Ned Hallowell, and that is never worry alone. Wow. Never worry alone. I yeah, feel, that's great. I feel that, especially in the uncertainty of our current times, and it does take a team. Failure is our teacher. It is delay, not defeat. Uh, it is hopefully temporary and not permanent. But to get through it all in life, you have to rely on others. And I could not agree with your sentiment anymore. If we can make that promise to each other, to our colleagues, to our kids, to never, to our spouses, to never worry alone, boy, what we could do in cutting down anxiety, depression, suicide ideation, and substance abuse disorder. Knowing you are worthy of depending on other people, knowing there is someone out there. You know, we all hear about the trusted adult that our children need in their lives. Well, guess what? We trusted adults need a trusted adult ourselves. And it can't just be our spouse. Researchers have found that the relationship between partners, romantic partners, is already overtaxed, trying to be these one household villages, everything everyone. So it needs to be taking time, not hours and hours of time. What research finds you need one hour of deliberate time a week of opening up, of being vulnerable and having someone else open up to you. That is what you need 
to be a first responder to your kids' struggles. Jennifer, honestly, just th- thank you for coming on. I was super excited when I got the book and I took a flyer chance on uh, reaching out to you to see if we could talk a little bit further about it. And and I'm excited about where this relationship's going to go and, and where you can help us more in, in our industry. Grateful to you guys. We, it feels as though we are struggling with the same big social issues. And I think together we can find some answers to help everybody. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for the great conversation. Jennifer's work in Never Enough is an exploration of our human tendencies towards excessive consumption and the pursuit of more. She examines the psychological origins of this drive and offers valuable insights into finding contentment in our lives. Chad and I hope that today's conversation was one of eye-opening introspection, an opportunity for us all to look inward to find answers, to find ways that we can learn and grow as a community, to be better parents, to be more aware of the societal pressures that affect us all. Get this book and start your journey towards a better version of yourself. We'll be sure to include the information in the show notes to purchase the book. Thank you again, Jennifer. Thank you for the personal impact that you've had on Chad and I for all that you do. And thank you for the insightful conversation here today for coming on our podcast. If we can ever help you, please never hesitate to reach out. And again, thank you so much for your leadership and impact. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Next Academy podcast, where we focus on construction leadership, brand growth, and staying on offense. As always, we hope you found great value in today's episode. Don't be defined by yesterday. Be the best version of you today. Every day is another opportunity to learn and grow. If you're in the construction industry or you know of someone who is, please visit our website at nextleadershipacademy.org to learn more about the Next Academy. Next is a unique training ground that is committed to helping participants become more prepared, dynamic leaders who can drive their company's sustainability and profitability into the future. If you're in search of personal and professional growth and ready to challenge yourself, you should consider next in the future. Thank you so much for your support of these episodes, your support of what we are building at the Next Academy, and your willingness to hit that share button, that like button, and pass along this content to coworkers, friends, and family across all of the social media landscape. If we can ever help you in any way, please do not hesitate to reach out. We're always here to help, or more importantly, find you the necessary resources that can help you on your leadership journey. Please be safe and smart out there. We look forward to catching up again soon. Until then, attack the day, own your life, and be next.